Welcome to False Creek 2018. This is week eight of eight weeks of summer youth camp, July 26th. This week we have 5,224 students and adults registered full-time from 107 churches. You are listening to the Thursday evening service with our guest speaker, Ed Newton. During this service, there were 216 decisions, including 66 professions of faith. Enjoy. I commission you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to judo chop your neighbor in the throat if they fall asleep in this session. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Here's what happens. After a good solid four days of camp, there's a moment where your head begins to get a little too heavy for your neck, and then it begins to roll around, and then your eyes begin to blink a little bit longer and longer and longer, and they stick. And then your head begins to reveal your neck, exposing this passageway that allows you to breathe which now becomes a bullseye for your neighbor when they see you all of a sudden beginning to sleep and twitch, doing the Michael Jackson thriller while you're dreaming of another place. And therefore, they will stiffen their thumb, they'll tighten their pinky, and then they will, in one swift motion and maneuver, thus our theme, they will go Karate Kid on your face. And then you'll wake up. You'll wake up. Trust me, you'll wake up. You won't be able to breathe for like two seconds. Don't, don't worry, you'll, you'll come back too. And your eyes will be massive like saucers, and you'll be like, bro, bro. And your accountability partner that just said to you, I got your back, they'll look at you and go, God bless you, I'm here for you. Anytime you need me to do that, I'm here for you. You've been an amazing audience. I want to say thank you for your attentiveness. I want to say thank you for your appetite for God's Word. If you've got a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 6. Yeah. Love that. I love that tradition that we got going on here. Judges chapter 6. Put your pride aside. Go to the table of contents. We're going to talk about a guy by the name of Gideon. Love the Gideons. They put Bibles in hotels all across the country. Love those guys and ladies that are specifically, many churches support that. It's a great ministry to support. Praise God for those Bibles that end up in hotel rooms. It's been significantly and very instrumentally used of God. But there's a guy by the name of Gideon we want to talk about tonight. Now, these four messages have been very significant. I want to try to telegraph a pass tonight. Let me use some basketball terminology. Let me look you in the face and basically make the throwing motion And the throwing motion is this. We've been very strategic with what we've been talking about for the past several nights. That is to talk about Moses, to talk about Ruth, to talk about Abraham, and tonight to talk about Gideon. We're laying a foundation because tomorrow night's message will be a grand crescendo. That is, it's like we have drumsticks and we get the opportunity to beat on the cowbell because everybody needs a little bit more cowbell in their life. Amen. And bring this series in regards to this theme finished to a grand closure, grand crescendo. Put a fat daddy bow on it and deliver it FedEx. I mean, that's what we're going to try to do tomorrow night. But when we get to the book of Judges, there's a couple things you need to know from the onset. The book of Judges, that is the synopsis, the Facebook profile would be that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Committing evil before the Lord. Their hearts had turned away from God. 
And God begins to speak into the heart of a judge, a deliverer by the name of Gideon. And what I want to say to you tonight is that we have to get to the place in our life where we begin to walk in the confidence that God gives us. Let me see if I can illustrate this. My daughters and I, my oldest daughter, her name's London. My middle daughter, her name's Lola. I have another daughter named Liv and a son named Lawson. But all my kids are with me this week, and this just happened just a few days ago. I was taking my two oldest daughters to the local gym that we are members at called Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. I don't know if you're familiar with 14 of you. Awesome, all right? So, but we're walking in. They got their workout shoes on, their workout clothes on. I got my workout shoes on, my workout clothes on, and I'm getting out of the vehicle, and I'm looking at my kids. I'm like, hey, hey, dad's going to get on the treadmill. I'm going to go to the circuit machine, and then I'm going to finish up my workout on the dumbbells. I'm going to get my tens out, and I'm going to get swole. You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, I realize my kids aren't even walking with me. And this is a dad moment. For those of you dads, there will be a time and place where your kids are embarrassed to walk with you. I was like, well, where, where'd y'all go? They're like, Dad, and they started pointing at my socks. Now, I don't have socks on tonight, but I had my socks. I had some basketball socks on, like above the calf. Why are you laughing right now? Because some of you are like, yeah, I wouldn't be walking with you either. But just had some basketball shorts on, super baggy, which means that the only thing that was actually showing was my kneecaps. And then I had my workout shirt tucked in my shorts. Some of you are like, I just threw up inside my mouth right now. Thank you so much. So my kids are like, Dad, um, we're, we're, we're not walking with you in the gym like that. Push down your socks. All you dads in the room, I need you to raise your hand right now. I, I just need, all you dads, feel the P90X burning your shoulder for just a moment. Come on, I got to see you. When our kids do that to us, our kids have not yet learned this, but when our kids do that to us, we take it to another level. This is what we do. Come on, put your hands down, Dad. This is what we start doing. We start pulling the socks up even higher. I started hiking up my, my shorts even further. I even pulled the drawstring out and let that just kind of dangle down. I'll jump rope with the jawstring right now. And I walked in like this. I was, I was like Ric Flair walking into that place. I was like, woo! confident in what I got going on right here. But one of the things that I've been trying to teach my kids is you got to stop caring about what people think about you. We, we care way too much about what people think about us. Now, it's a whole lot easier for me to stand on stage and say that to you, but sometimes it's hard for me to even believe that for myself. I wrestle with insecurity, and I want to walk in the spiritual things that God's called me to with the confidence that Jesus is greater in me than he that's in the world. But why is it that we walk in fear of what God has asked us to step into, walk into? And Gideon was paralyzed by fear. But God wanted him to walk in confidence, not in himself, but the confidence that God would give him. So in Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, if you're with me, Falls Creek Week 8, come on, say amen. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, real quickly, this is a drive-by statement. The Midianites have wreaked havoc in the nation of Israel. Therefore, every time they get a produce that is a harvest, they'll take it from them. So you got Gideon. 
Now, I didn't grow up 4-H. I mean, I, I grew up Orlando, Florida, skateboard, boogie board, that whole thing. I didn't grow up 4-H. But you don't have to be 4-H to understand this. You don't thresh wheat, which means you separate wheat with a winnowing fork that is the, ch- the chaff from the wheat in a wine press. That is in a cellar. You, you take wheat to the highest hill, allow the wind to pass through, and it separates the wheat and the chaff as you begin to lift it or loft it into the air. But why is Midian... That is, the Midianites created such fear in the heart of the Israelites. When there's a God that's delivered the nation of Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians, led them across the Red Sea because somewhere in the midst of this, they forgot how strong their God was. That we serve a mighty God. And there's Gideon in the wine press, threshing wheat, afraid. And God speaks to him. I want you to notice this. I love verse 12. It's one of my favorite verses in reference to Gideon. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, if you just heard what I just said, that that Gideon is afraid for his life. He's threshing wheat in a wine press in a cellar so nobody could see him. But the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, which actually translates, the power of God is on you, almighty man of valor, that translates this way, you're not one that runs from the enemy, you're one that runs to the enemy. Which seems to be contradicting actually what Gideon is doing. But I want you to listen to me. Come on, Falls Creek Week 8. Listen to me. I'm so thankful that we see in this passage a God that sees the future Gideon. Not just the present Gideon, but the future Gideon. I need you to know that God sees the future you. God's got a purpose and a plan for you, a destiny for you. And he needs you to see yourself in the way, in the vision, in the perspective, in the optics of how God sees you. I'll never forget this. I was doing a wedding in Texas several years ago. Here's how you know it's a Texas wedding. While you're doing the outdoor wedding, there are folks that are deer hunting on the property behind you. That's how you know it's a Texas wedding. Oh, I, I, we got folks from Texas in here? Is anyone? Wow. My people right there. That's how you know it's a Texas wedding. Shotguns going off. And all of a sudden, there's a moment where I'm looking at the groom, I'm looking at the bride. I say to the groom, you've never been a husband before. I'm looking at the bride. I go, you've never been a bride before. And as soon as I say that, all of a sudden, she gets emotional, like ugly cry, like sobbing, like that moment where she's like, and I'm like, okay. So I just continue on. I'm like, hey, hey, it's going to be good. We're good. I pronounce them husband and wife. I dismiss the gathering to the reception. I go back to the green room. I'm getting to drink of water, and one of the groomsmen comes up to me. and He goes, hey, dude, best wedding sermon I've ever heard. I go, hey, don't be too impressed. I read my notes like word for word. He goes, no, no, no. It was the moment you looked at the bride and said she'd never been a bride before. I was like, they're young, like they're in their 20s. He goes, you, you didn't know she had been married before? I was like, uh, that'd have been helpful if somebody would have told me that before the wedding. He goes, the reason why she was crying, I was like, please explain. He goes, she was married for six months. Everybody tried to talk her out of the wedding, but she felt like this was the one that she was supposed to marry, and that dude abused her for six months. And she got out of that marriage. It was an unfortunate divorce. In the process of that, she's been living in shame, and then she met Prince Charming, 
the guy that she married today, he said, the moment you looked at her and said that you've never been a bride before, there's something that washed over her. He goes, I know the, I know the bride. Something in her heart unlocked that she finally began to see herself the way that God sees her. You have to understand that oftentimes our insecurities and all the things, our inadequacies have a tendency to surface to the top. And when we find ourselves living in an unrealistic perspective of ourselves in light of what God has said to us, we just sang it tonight. He is the great I am. And yes, you don't have to remind me that I am not a lot of things. But if I know the great I am, then I understand that because he's the great I am, and though I got a, a lot of I am not, when he gets into the scenario, into the story, he changes the ending of it. And when we begin to look at the life of Gideon, he says, oh, mighty man of valor, could I just look into the face of some young men and young ladies tonight, and I want you to hear me, that you are women and men of valor. You may not feel that way. You don't feel like God could use you, but I need you to know that God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And he's calling you by name. He's inviting you into the deep water where we take off floaties and we jump in. And we get swept away into the movement of what God has in store for us. And this is an invitation for Gideon. And Gideon receives this not in the way that we would expect Gideon to receive it. He actually begins to challenge the message that the angel of the Lord has delivered. Listen to verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now watch this. It had been 250 years since Israel had been delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians. And those stories of the miracles were being passed on from generation to generation, but there was a generation that did not see the miraculous. Moms and dads, listen to me. I'm so thankful that you're here. We believe in this generation. There's a lot of people, cultural anthropologists, that have given up on this generation. But we want you to know, young people in the room, you are not the future church. You're the current church. You're not generation tomorrow. You're generation today. And we believe in you. We absolutely believe in you. But moms and dads, listen to me. If we're not, I'm just talking to the moms and dads in the room right now. If we're not mature in our faith, living a passionate, dedicated life to Jesus Christ, here's what happens. We perpetuate a generation that becomes marginal towards the things of God. And then that third generation or that generation after them isn't just marginal, they go missing. We're one generation away from a people group not knowing the Lord. What we do is serious business. And adults, we got to get to the place because if you're like me, you're looking into the faces of your kids going, stop caring about what people think, and then immediately we care about what people think. How do I know that? Adults, listen to me. We go into our gatherings and our services, and we worship in freedom here hands lifted, and a response that's just saying, God, I am unashamed. And then we go back to our churches, and we don't do it. Why? Because we're concerned about what people think. Listen to me, adults. If we're going to be a people group that inspires a generation, what we do in here has to reflect what we do back home. Because this generation is sick of slick. They've seen it all, and it looks fake to them. And this generation is longing for something not to be photoshopped, 
not for it to be glossed over. Can I just tell you, being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that we're perfect. Being a follower of Jesus means that when I fall down, I get back up again. Book of Proverbs says it best, when you fall down, you get back up again. And Gideon's going, where have you been, God? Where have you been? And somewhere along the line, this concept of what I just shared with these adults, it's true. We've heard stories of yesteryear of how God did something. I don't know about you, but we've all grown up in churches where we talked about the glory days of stuff that happened 50 years ago, 75 years ago. And I'm grateful for what God's doing across the land. But may it be that we experience Pentecost revival in our land today. I want to be a part of something that history books would write about. I want to be a part of a movement of God in my lifetime, in your lifetime, where we could see like the book of Acts line up with our day, that we would be a part of something where God would show up, show out, show off, and nobody could get the credit for it. But it's real easy for us and our culture to point our fingers at politicians and, if you will, like a lot of folks in leadership. But may we say this, it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to believe what he's already said about us. Right up, almighty oh man or woman of valor. Embrace the destiny that he's called you to. And so here's Gideon that's questioning the Lord. And God says this over him in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said this over him. Go in this might of yours, save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I'll be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. And I don't have time to unpack all of this for you, but you find out that here's Gideon that goes and gets this meal prepared. He lays it before on the rock, and the angel of the Lord hits it with the staff, and it's consumed. But it's not just any angel of the Lord. I believe, and I, I so wish I had more time to unpack this for you. This is a big word called Christophany. You're like, uh, hey, Ed, that, that's too big of a word. Listen, we use big words all the time, like mayonnaise, frappuccino. Like, we use big words all the time. Christophany means it's the time that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Let me just make a drive-by statement. Who's the fourth person in the fiery furnace with the boys of Babylon? It's Jesus. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He's the hero in the story. But I want to show you something that's incredible because I, I get geeked out about stuff like this. Notice this promise, this, this statement that Gideon makes in verse 22. It says, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord, here it is, God. For now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Bible says that no one's ever seen God face to face. Like Moses, before there was a, a song by Third Day, like, show me your glory, there was a guy named Moses that said, I want to see your glory, and God says, you can't see me face to face and live. So Moses stands upon the rock, and the glory of God passes by. But as he stands upon that rock, he's given that revelation. That in order to understand who God is, you got to stand upon the rock of who Jesus is. 
And Gideon says he sees the Lord face to face. Like, for example, and this just popped in my mind, but it's Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. How do we know that? He's either lying because the Bible says that no one's ever seen God. But I love what John 12, verse 41 would say. Isaiah spoke these things because he saw the glory of Jesus. Gideon gets a glimpse of Jesus. And let me say this to you. When you get a glimpse of Jesus, then you really begin to understand your identity. Don't you recognize this, that the attack of the enemy in our life, the enemy, Satan himself, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. What is the enemy trying to do in your life for you to believe the honey-dip lies that God can't use you? And that's not the gospel. We've said this before, that the gospel is so rich in this tradition that he takes broken pieces and makes masterpieces, and he takes what's insignificant, and he makes it indescribable, and he takes our messes, and he turns them into miracles, and he even uses our scars and tells a story of his faithfulness. And Gideon, for some reason, just goes, you can't use me. I'm the weakest. No, God's got a rich history of using the weakest to reveal his strength. We boast in our weakness and the fact that God could use us. But what you'll notice is that God is asking Gideon to do something crazy. It's found in verse 26. Notice this. In verse 26, actually verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah beside it. Now real quickly, don't miss this. Baal, little G God, that is the fertility God of the Canaanites, somehow becomes a part of the worship culture of the Midianites. So you have an image of a bull that demanded human sacrifice, by the way, on the hillside in public view. Next to it would be an Asherah pole, and an Asherah pole would basically be the female counterpart to Baal, and because of its exaggerated sexual body parts, I can't even put the image on the screen, but this is how grossly immoral the people of Israel were. They have forsaken God that's delivered them across the Red Sea, and now they're engaging in sexual relationships with cult prostitutes at the Asherah pole, and guess who put the statues there? Gideon's daddy. And God says, go cut it down. And rent like a wood chipper from Home Depot, and run it through the wood chipper, get some kindling, get some diesel fuel, light it on fire, take your daddy's bull and chop it up into pieces and sacrifice it to God as to say that our God has no rivals, that nobody's in the same weight class with our God. Gideon does it at night because he's afraid of what everybody might do to him. But don't miss this. It's real easy for us to be critical of Gideon that he would do it at night. But can I say this, and don't miss this statement. Night obedience is better than no obedience. Night obedience is better than no obedience. Gideon's afraid of his father. He's afraid of the men of the town. And when they wake up the next morning and the statues have been torn down and the Asherah pole has been put through the wood chipper from Home Depot or Lowe's, and they see the scorching fire there, immediately they go CSI on the crime scene and they know it's Gideon. 
Could we leave enough evidence in our life that if they put us on trial of whether or not we're a Christian, we'd be found guilty? Did you catch that? I might have said it too fast. That could we live a life of such commitment before the Lord if there was crime scene investigators looking for evidence in our life of whether or not we're a Christian? Would there be enough evidence that stacks up that makes it clear that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? May I be found guilty by the way that I live my life that I would have so much evidence that would go, yeah, quite evident, quite obvious, he was madly in love with Jesus. That the way I live my life would be so evident. May your life speak that way. But there's this mob that comes after Gideon. They go right to his dad, Joash. And I love what begins to transpire here in this passage. Verse 31, Judges chapter 6. If y'all still with me, say amen. amen. Listen to this. Judges chapter 6, verse 31. We're hopscotching through this chapter. But listen to verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. You know what happens? Come on, look at me, young people. You know what happens? Joash, who's the actual man that put up the altar to Baal in Asherah, is now confronted by the men in the city. They go, hey, bring your son out. He's got to die. And Joash has a change of heart. Don't miss this. Joash now recognizes that his son gives him courage to rise up, step up, and man up. And he says this to these men. He goes, hey, if Baal needs you to defend him, then he ain't God. Does that make sense tonight? That if God needs somebody to defend him, he ain't God. Which means that the courage and the bravery of Gideon sparked revival in his daddy's heart. Look at me, young people. I believe that when we pack up our stuff or you head home after tomorrow night's worship service or you go home on Saturday, Whenever you get home, I believe that the great awakening that we have been all praying for actually will begin to happen in your houses. That when your moms and dads feel the heat of Jesus that burns so hot inside your soul, that it actually would spark revival in them. And I love what Joash says to these men. If Baal needs you to defend him, then he ain't God. But then these men try to rename, they try to relabel Gideon. They call him Jerobel, which means that Baal is against him. You'll see that in verse 32. Now let me just get to the heart of the issue. That is, the men of the city look at Gideon, they go, Baal has now put Gideon in the crosshairs, in the bullseye. Can I say this to you, False Creek Week Ache? I have been praying that all of hell would know that we ain't playing. You're like, whoa, whoa, back that down, preacher. I don't need you to be praying for me that, like, hell would be mad at me. No, I, I believe with all my heart 
That if you and I can understand this, oh, I wish I had more time. Acts chapter 19 would say this, that there is a moment where the apostle Paul is casting out demons in Jesus' name. The seven sons of Sceva come along the scene, and they're like, man, we want to be able to have that kind of power. So they're casting out demons in the name of the apostle Paul. And then all of a sudden, a demon starts speaking. Watch this. The demon says to one of the sons of Sceva, says, hey, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but who are you? Asked to say that the demons didn't know who this person was. My prayer for you is that the host of hell and the demonic force in darkness would know our name. You may not want that. You you may be like, no, no, no. I want to blend in. I I don't want to stand out. I I don't want hell to know my name. Well, let me just, I want to speak this over my family's life. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, and I'm going to pray this over my wife. I'm going to pray this over my kids, that all of hell would know my kids' names, that all of hell would know my name. Here's the reason why. Because if Jesus didn't have a purpose and a mission for your life, For those of you that gave your life to Jesus last night and the night before, if he didn't have a mission for you, guess what he would have done? He would have teleported you to heaven as soon as you walked down and gave your life to Jesus. But he left you on this earth. Here's the reason why. So that you can push back darkness, so that you could begin to break the chains from those of your classmates, your teammates, your family members that need to know the liberating power and the freedom-filled purpose of Jesus. And therefore, we hear this promise spoken over Gideon. Rise up, almighty man of valor. Do you know what the name Gideon means? It means to cut down. He began to actually live up to his name, and I'll close with this. My full name is Ronald Edward Newton Jr. I've actually, up to about six months ago, have been embarrassed of my whole name. I've gone by Ed since I was in elementary school. I'm a junior. I'm not embarrassed of my dad. I was just like, hey, dad, I just was hoping I could get a cool name. And I'm not against Ronald. I'm not against Edward, but Twilight hadn't come on the scene yet, and Edward didn't come, like, cool until Twilight came out. And, but I did a little research on my name about six months ago. And the name Ronald means mighty counselor. The name Edward means guardian of wealth. My whole life I was made fun of in school, Fig Newton, Isaac Newton, Wayne Newton. And all of a sudden I began to understand what the word Newton means. Pioneer of new towns, new country. And I began to realize how prophetic my name was. That is mighty counselor, guardian of wealth someone that would pioneer uncharted territory. I began to speak this over my son. My son's name is Lawson Teshemi Newton. Lawson, seeker of truth. Teshemi, that is appointed leader, Newton, discoverer of new territory. I need you to know tonight that when you give your life to Jesus, you get a new name. 
And that name has meaning. Gideon's name meant to cut down. He was living in his destiny. He was living in his purpose. And God would use him. I'm talking about keeping it not just 100, but keeping it 300. Come on, somebody. Keeping it 300. Takes on 135,000 men by the Spirit of God that clothed him. And the Spirit of God tonight is moving in this room, leading us to embrace the name that's above all names. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's a new name in Jesus tonight. And that new name has a destiny. Come on, let's stand together if you don't mind as we stand tonight. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a brief moment. You've been such a phenomenal audience, grateful for your attention. The Word of God has gone forward. His purposes are true. His Word never returns void. Great is His faithfulness. The Bible is very clear that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Your past doesn't define you. Your future has been written for you. You're accepted, you're beloved, you're changed, you're delivered, you have eternal life, you're forgiven, you got grace, he calls you holy, he justifies you, he gives his limitless love to you, his mercies are new every morning, great is his faithfulness. He writes your name down in the Lamb's book of life. This week at camp, new names have gone into the Lamb's book of life, never to be erased. And the only way you get your name in the Lamb's book of life is to put your faith in the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, and that is Jesus. So if you're willing to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, many of you have made that decision this week. We're so proud of you. But for some of you, you've been hanging on. You've just been saying, I'll do that later. I warned you that life is a vapor. It's here for a moment, then gone. There's a journey that God's called you to of significance, not just blending in, but of greatness. Not just popularity, that's not the invitation, it's the walk in power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God. And when you call on his name, everything changes. The good news of the gospel is too good to be true. It's not religion, it's not your works, it's not your merits, it's not your deeds, it's not I try harder. No, it's you in faith and repentance, believing in your mind and your heart that Jesus is Savior of the world.